Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking renewables and the challenges they faced in 2023 and the resiliency organisations need to create to master them. Our guests are Managing Director Julie McLaughlin and Senior Director over Energy Lisa Malashenko, both at Alvarez and Marsal, the management consultant. As always, you can really support the show by leaving us a positive review on the platform you're listening on or recommending the show to your colleagues. And as always, I hope you enjoy the episode. Julie, Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Paul. It's great to be back. It's great to have you back. So we're talking about the the challenges, but also building resiliency in the renewable sector. And this is all in the context of this year, which is it's been relatively hard hit in terms of performance and results from a number of factors. Maybe, Julie, we can start off with you. Can you just give us a quick overview on kind of what the current situation is and, and indeed why we're having this conversation? Sure. So I think, you know, this this year, 2023, started off with an enormous amount of excitement in, in the renewable space, in particular following, you know, the IRA as well as the infrastructure bill and the momentum coming from decarbonization efforts, uh, both through, you know, governments as well as as well as companies. Some of those tailwinds did confront headwinds this year, including inflation, which has you know, been building for a little bit, pretty significant interest rate increases, as well as a number of supply chain challenges that have really impacted the renewable industry across the board. Yeah. Can you give us some sense of how that's manifested in stock performance, uh, indeed some cancellations or PPAs and so forth? Just help us set the scene a little bit before we talk about why these challenges have come about. Just what's the magnitude of them and how have they manifested? Yeah. So I think overall, you know, the stock market and the equities market has seen has seen some some declines in, in terms of valuation. Uh, from a project and an industry perspective, there are a number of projects that have entered into power purchase agreements. Um, many of those power purchase agreements, kind of normal development course of business, you would enter into uh, multiple years ahead of actually constructing the, the project. And a lot of the power purchase agreements that are already in place are, are difficult for the developers to to kind of earn a profit against because of all of those challenges I mentioned, you know, those those many of those PPAs were inked when interest rates were were significantly less and and certainly the renewable wind, solar and battery storage really rely on long-term project finance at a lower cost. They were also inked at a time when costs for for components were expected either to be where they were previously or to decline which has been the trend in particular in you know again wind solar and storage over the last two decades costs you know consistently declined and now we're seeing costs go up and then there are a number of supply chain challenges both with solar panels in particular as well as a number of other components um, that are broadly in demand and and now kind of difficult to get a hold of. 
Yeah. And and Lisa, maybe you can talk to this just before we move into those challenges. This You mentioned at the start there, Julie, the scale of, of optimism manifested in investment um, in your in your September report that we can will put uh, links to in the show notes. You know, you note that some $240 billion have flowed into renewables since the, the passage of the IRA. And that's even more than in oil and gas in terms of uh, CapEx investment. I mean, that's an enormous scale of, of investment that's flown flowed into, into the sector. Yeah, that's right. But at the same time, it needs to flow through the entire value chain. And I think that that's where we're having some of the the challenges that in, in order for all of this to work, you not only need to have the capacity in the renewables directly increase, but you also need to have the suppliers that are able to support this growth and also importantly, the grid that can accommodate the interconnection of those renewables. So I think some of the challenges that we're seeing is that there is a a massive demand for renewables, both fueled by policy that is accelerating energy transition and also by the uh, corporate sector that's more and more interested in decarbonization. Uh, But this increase in demand is going to take some time to to trickle down through the entire value chain. And and I think some of the challenges that we're seeing are are related to that. Yeah. Okay. Well let's let's start there. I guess the big one, the sort of the macro change that affected all markets this year has been the run up in interest rates. Um, how has that impacted the sector, Lisa? Well the interest rates are impacting the situation in, in a couple of ways. One is the the overall business model that has really been fueled for a long time by low interest rates and the ability of companies and investors in the space to finance growth. Um, with the increased interest rates, you have pressure on, on both sides of the model. On one hand, the financing is becoming more expensive and it's also increasing the costs of um, of operation and development. And that's something that hasn't really been baked into uh, the business cases in the renewable space that have been really growth-focused up to up to now. There are three or four headwinds that the renewable sector is facing. The one you mentioned, Julie, of course, is also supply chain challenges. And Lisa, know, Lisa noted how, how the investment hasn't necessarily flowed the right way through it. And we see that in batteries. We see that in other aspects of the energy transition. Can you help us understand the supply chain challenges and costs and a bit of detail around that? Sure. So there's a few things that are happening in supply chain. On one hand, it's just the spike in demand. And that always uh, causes some constraints as the vendors across the supply chain adjust to the increased demands. I think there's some uncertainty in some aspects of the value chain of how sustained that demand is going to be. And it is resulting in some manufacturers not necessarily increasing long-term capacity. So I think we're seeing that in transformers on the electric transmission and distribution side that are quite scarce, and there's at least a two-year wait for transformers at this point. And while the suppliers of transformers are increasing their 
supply as, as much as possible. There's also hesitance in investing in long-term new manufacturing facilities because there's some uncertainty as to, you know, is, is this a shorter-term demand spike or is this something that really needs a sustained increase in uh, manufacturing capabilities? And we're seeing this in, in different aspects of both the grid and, and renewable supply. Then there's some uh, shocks to the supply chain from China in the solar space, most notably the regulations related to forced labor really caused a, a major disruption and um, inability of some of the developers to get solar panels through customs and looking for alternative supply sources. It's really difficult um, area to resolve because most 90% or so of polysilicon and wafers come uh, from China. So even if is there's a supplier outside of China that you can procure a, a, a panel from, when you start tracing the supply chain back, there's a risk of, of running into some of those issues. It's been most noted in the, in the solar space, but the forced labor is not necessarily entirely contained to, to solar panels. We haven't seen it at scale in other parts of the value chain in the renewable space, but it's possible for that to become a broader issue, and companies are definitely thinking about that. I think there's also questions more kind of from a geopolitical perspective on the longer-term trends in this space, and it's really impacting how uh, companies are thinking of their suppliers in, in building supply chains for the long term. And then, of course, there's also some constraints on the, um, on the basic materials and the costs of those materials as we uh, see really big demand in, in, in certain things that are uh, driven by energy transition and decarbonization. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and these, these same strands are playing out across the commodities and the energy sector more broadly of that deglobalization and trying to friend shore and near shore and the impacts of that. You, you mentioned there as well, grid connected, the transformers and the, and the backlog on those. Julie, can we turn to you and understand, you know, another significant uh, headwind that these projects face is actually getting connected to the grid, not least not enough infrastructure present to enable that as well as uh, permitting and policy challenges to actually to, to connect these facilities. Can you just help us understand and unpack that a bit for us? Sure. Yeah, I think that by and large, you know, we call in the industry the the queues, right? Which is is just like you think about it. If you're queuing up to get into a, a building or other projects, are queuing up in their specific grid area, which in the U.S. are are broadly divided based on regional transmission grids. They need to have the interconnection capacity in order to to connect and, and start to generate power that can then flow the electrons. And because of you know the enthusiasm in the space, the demand for electricity, which for many years was actually declining based on efficiency, is now going up, largely driven by by AI and other electrification categories. There's 
an enormous amount of, of demand for those projects and developers and investors who, who want to develop the projects, invest the money and operate the assets. But the infrastructure has not necessarily changed dramatically in the last 20 years in the same way that the renewable energy space has changed dramatically in the U.S. So we really have too many projects for the existing grid um, with the existing capacity. And uh, there's, you know, recently a FERC order, FERC 2023, that is trying to address how regional transmission grids go through the process of assessing which projects and which areas can interconnect. But there's also infrastructure investments that, that we need to do for, for a number of different reasons, by and large, because we have not made those you know, very significant investments in, in expanding the grid's capacity, even though we continue to to increase demand. And um, expanding grid capacity is, is a very complex issue. Uh, it's very hard to get high voltage transmission permitted and and through to the kind of construction and, and operation stage. And just for like the orders of magnitude of, of, of what we need, uh, Department of Energy estimates that we need to increase our transmission capacity by uh, at least 60% by 2030 and uh, triple it by 2050 to accommodate energy transition and the uh, renewable generation. And on the distribution side, it, it's, it's more difficult to estimate. It's not necessarily a capacity issue as much as is a need to change the design um, of the grids uh, to allow for uh, bidirectional flow of energy and uh, more local balancing. So some of it is capacity. Uh, but it's also the way that the grid itself is designed. It's it's difficult to get a precise number just because of the complexity of and the the size of distribution. But we're talking in you know four or five trillion dollars in the next decade, and all of this is is running into into rates increases. We're seeing utilities now ask for rate increases of a, as much as 25% in the single rate case. And it's, uh, it's a really difficult challenge for state regulators that are in charge of, of making sure that the rates are reasonable uh, and make decisions on these rate cases. So the, the need to upgrade the grid is running into the challenges of both just the difficulty of doing these projects, like Julie was saying, of getting things permitted, challenges of getting it funded, and now increasingly the supply chain challenge is making all of this more difficult as well, uh, because now there's much more significant wait times, and even if utility has the funding to be able to interconnect a project, whether it's a distribution or transmission, they physically may not be able to get a transformer to be able to do that work. And all of that is is definitely a very significant uh, challenge in this space. And in the short term, I think is pushing the industry into looking for ways that we can decarbonize and integrate renewables without doing significant interconnections that require mm. require investments. There's a lot of hunting for for space to interconnect uh, onto the existing uh, grid. 
Yeah, yeah, we've covered that with regards to um, connecting batteries to renewables. You know, it's actually that grid connection is probably one of your most valuable assets. We're not going to circle back to this in terms of building resiliency because a lot of these challenges sit almost outside the renewables industry, particularly around permitting and so forth. Is there anything there at the moment that means that we're starting to see see some shifts on that and uh, a greater willingness by state um, and regional? And this is a a global problem as well. The same challenges are in Europe as well. Are we seeing sort of um, a sentiment shift there and more willingness at the governmental and then local authorities to actually accept uh, building that infrastructure? Well, I mean, I think coming back to, to FERC order, you know, 2023, I think it, it is definitely an indication that um, there's at least acknowledgement at the the federal level, the FERC level, that the process of interconnection has to change and we've got to get more efficient at identifying, you know, as a society, but in particular, you know, kind of regional transmission operators, um, identifying which projects are likely to move forward. You know, one of the challenges in the industry is that there are projects in the queue um, that, you know, don't have enough backing or for other reasons, you know, will not ever make it to kind of commercial operation. And it can be very hard to assess, you know, kind of which are those projects that that aren't going to follow through and therefore, trying to get them out of the queues of the ones that do have a pathway forward that have the the right backing that have everything that they need to to kind of progress all the way into commercial operations can uh can do that on the you know on the permitting level it just becomes so localized i think it's hard to assess whether there's enough understanding of of the requirements that we have as a society in order to therefore support, you know, high voltage transmission or additional infrastructure or even the projects themselves in, in your backyard. I think there's, you know, a fair bit of nimbyism and and that seems to span span the political spectrum for sure. Yeah, yeah. The one we heard recently was uh, uh, banana, uh, build build nothing anywhere, nowhere ever, kind of. <laughs> I don't think I got that right. But um, OK, so the final couple of challenges are also somewhat intertwined, which is the nature of the markets that these uh, renewables projects are being built in and the duck curve and that piece, but also actually the the climate events themselves, the frequency and intensity of of natural disasters and weather events that are making the markets really volatile as well, which are having an impact on these projects and the performance of them. Can you tackle that one for us, Lisa? Yeah, it's really a fascinating topic. And I think what makes climate events, climate adaptation and, and resilience so interesting in the energy space is that it's both a risk and an opportunity for companies. I worked a lot on this topic when I was a, a regulator in, in California uh, on wildfires and, and other climate um, challenges. And, uh, you know, one of the uh, things is that it's, it's actually very difficult to uh, predict um, of how the climate change and changing weather patterns manifest in any particular uh, location. Uh, we 
have ability to model things over the long long spans, and we have kind of shorter term weather uh, prediction models. But it gets uh, more difficult when you're you know trying to sort of say accurately like this year you know how many extreme heats or extreme cold days or you know can we see right. But what we I think we can say is that the the present is looking different from the past, and no matter where you are in the country, there are weather patterns that are starting to manifest themselves in um uh in ways that are distinctly different right and we we see you know from wildfires in California intensity of the uh, uh, storms and hurricanes increasing extreme heat extreme colds the the cold weather snap in the in in Texas right and so what a you know there's a couple of things that i i think that all energy companies and renewables need to be thinking about one is their own uh, resiliency of their assets and also of their operations to potential climate events and and that really is uh, taking the time to understand the, the difference changes that are happening locally where they're operating and making sure that their assets are weatherized. And there's really no asset class that is immune from this, you know, we the, from batteries that uh, behave very differently in, 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 you know, extreme heat or extreme cold scenarios to wind changes or, you know, what have you. There's really no asset that you can say, oh, like, we don't need to be looking at that because you know, we're not impacted by, by climate. Every, every asset class is impacted by climate. It's important to understand what those impacts are and how they can play out in any particular area. Uh, then the second layer is really understanding the larger impact on the energy system. And that can be, you know, things like the impacts on the markets and on the pricing during di different types of events. And also ability to export electrons onto the grids and curtailments. Um, so I think as as the renewable projects shift more and more into kind of ongoing operations from the development stage, it's important that the operators have the muscle to really understand that larger ecosystem and the the grids and the markets and the interplay with the extreme weather events. Because otherwise you can end up like situations like we've seen in Texas and the uh, major penalties on generators that were not able to fulfill their contractual obligations and even bankruptcies that were resulting from that. And then uh, we can, you know, maybe cover that a bit later. There's also a, a major opportunity from that uh, in a renewable space of how uh, renewable assets and clean energy assets you can increase resilience over uh, over the overall energy uh, system. Yeah, I'll just add, you know, there's also winter storm Elliot that happened in the Midwest in, you know, kind of late last year that from a cost perspective uh, was quite similar to, to URI, although, you know, kind of less broadly televised or, or referenced um, in, in the public domain. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm 
focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Thanks for putting that all together. It's a significant suite of challenges that the sector faces. First question to you, Julie. I, I kind of want to get the this understanding. We, for, for the last decade, and we mentioned at the start, you've had a, a, a strong, continuous decline in the levelized cost of energy uh, as, as prices have come down, as the technology has improved, and obviously we had a low interest rate environment. Is all of this signal, signaling to you that we are probably in a period of stasis of LCOE, even rising LCOE? And you know, help us understand what that means. Yeah, so I think, you know, immediately we're we're in a, a period of, of rising LCOE, which again is reflective of all those trends you mentioned. I I think that eventually the market will will adjust and we've already seen adjustments taking place in particular in certain jurisdictions like uh PJM, for example, who has, you know, kind of undertaken Q reform and the the prices on the PPAs for projects that have interconnection have gone up over the past, let's say, 18 months. And again, that's kind of the first time in, in, in a broader trend that we've seen PPAs for renewables go up as opposed to down. I think, you know, I think the market will continue to evolve. And um, there's a lot of really interesting innovations taking place. In particular, I think there's a lot of battery chemistries that are experimenting, you know, manufacturers and startups that are experimenting with different chemistries that don't, you know, have as much, you know, kind of um, reliance on rare earth minerals and, and other inputs. And so I think longer term, um, it's it's really hard to predict, which is both, you know, the exciting and the terrifying part of the business is that it is kind of in a constant state of innovation. Some of that funding from the IRA is going towards innovation and, and kind of first of a kind technologies in the decarbonization space. And I think we have, you know, a lot of exciting opportunities that will evolve and, and hopefully, you know, bring that LCOE cost um, back down over time. Yeah, yeah, this is part of the challenge, right? You've got such volatility in the pathways, whether that's technology, that's policy, that's markets, and these organizations, these companies are having to navigate that. When you look at this year, though, has it been a watershed year in terms of the the participants? Are we seeing bankruptcies? Are we seeing consolidation? What's happened to the market structure as a result of this year? Yeah, I think there's a lot of consolidation, um, and certainly not just in renewables, also also in oil and gas. As as you know, the recent recent announcements by by Chevron and Exxon, you know, there there's been changing of hands of of a lot of different you know different portfolios um, in the renewable space, and I think we'll continue to continue to see consolidation. I mean, one of the things that we are seeing is that those investors or larger players with conviction um, continue to hold that conviction and are, you know, in many cases willing to double down on their bet, which is, which is a great, you know, I think a great place to be. And I think they're, you know, 
just just like in you know with water and and food we need energy we can't we can't run our society without energy so it, it does have a bright future i think it's just a question of exactly what that looks like yeah i guess when we turn to the the, the business you're in in advising um Let's take those challenges, and I, I kind of want to get your sense, both of you. You know what the the best companies out there are doing. What are some of those strategies to build resiliency beyond, as you highlighted, Lisa, about the actual infrastructure and its ability to withstand uh, climate and weather events? You know, when we take the, for example, let's take supply chain. Um, Lisa, maybe you can give us some sense of kind of what you're advising clients to do. How are companies that are are surviving and thriving navigating those supply chain challenges? Well, I think it's really important that supply chain and procurement gets elevated into strategic function at companies. If it's not so already, I definitely, you know, having been in the industry for like 20 years, have not always seen supply chain and procurement be, you know, really considered a strategic function in the energy space in a way that it may be more you know baked in in some other sectors like automotive right so i think now it really is an imperative that the companies think about their sourcing as a core part of their strategy and that you know, includes really understanding your uh, supply base and having a perspective on the long-term supply relationships that companies want to build. I think we're also seeing and going to see more unconventional plays in the in the supply chain area. Uh, we're you know, and it can be things like having third parties play a role as a as a buyer for multiple entities in order to get better outcomes from manufacturers so for example you know it whether it's utilities or renewable companies working with their O&M um, or construction partners to to buy equipment and hold inventory we're also seeing players like in the you know tech space or or others that have interconnection needs actually starting to look at directly buying equipment in order to accelerate interconnection which i i, I think is just a, a fascinating phenomenon and a a sign of of the times that we live in in this whole challenge so um, I think, in, you know, there is a lot of activity in this space. We have, uh, it is a topic that our clients are very interested in. And I think will continue to be a source of uh, differentiation for, for the businesses. Hmm, interesting. And, and Julie, what do we see on the sort of the financial discipline part, both us and for investors on the CapEx side, as well as OPEX? Yeah, I mean, I think the tides have shifted a little bit and that with, you know, I think it's a combination of, of the headwinds in the space, but then also just the industry kind of maturing and, and going through its its own evolution as it as it gets a lot larger than, than it used to be even five years ago. So I think, you know, making sure that the the business plan is consistent with the opportunities and and risks currently in the market 
having that financial discipline, right? And, and someone actually said this to me very early in my career that kind of deciding not to go forward with a project or investment can be sometimes a more important decision than deciding to go forward with, with a project or investment. So just kind of having the discipline and making sure that the, the investments are the right ones. And I think also kind of contingency planning, either whether that's, you know, hedging areas or as, as Lisa was mentioning, or ensuring that you have, you know, the right procurement strategies to build or, or, or develop whatever your, your product is, as well as uh, corporate financial planning and support and, and making sure you're not, you know, kind of overspending. It sounds, it sounds elementary, but, but it is really a key success factor. Yeah. Yeah. And somewhat perforce, right? 5% interest rates, 8% interest are, are far more likely to lead to good decisions than 0% interest rates, right? So I think we're sort of, we're seeing that generally return to the market and investment decisions across the board. One one thing we touched on as well was around the market side and how challenging it can be to to actually commercialize these projects in in deregulated markets in particular. Are we now seeing, as was alluded to on a previous podcast that we did, is on-site storage of batteries, are they now becoming almost a must for these types of projects to be able to commercialize them? Do you have any sight on that? Yeah, so I think there there are certain jurisdictions where where they are requiring batteries it, it, together with storage. There have been a number of rule changes in California to allow hybrids in other jurisdictions like in the Northeast to incentivize battery, you know, standalone storage in addition to the hybrid approach. So I think that the value of batteries increases with increasing congestion and and volatility because they are incredibly good at responding quickly and both, you know, taking power off the grid as well as putting it it back on. Yeah. I, I guess when we, Lisa, maybe we can finish up with you. When you sort of look back on this year, do you think this will be a pivotal year in renewables, uh, arguably globally, in terms of, a, a, I guess, a an accelerated maturation as all of these challenges have kind of converged in one and that we're going to see somewhat of a different more disciplined across operations across financial across you know all aspects of the business renewable sector going forwards well i i don't know i i think my my personal opinion is that it's going to continue to be a mix Right, because we have a combination on of both the headwinds and the tailwinds, and there's still a very significant focus on growth. So I think we are definitely going to see more and more shifts towards disciplined operations. But at the same time, I I don't really see it as like a historic line, right, where you know it's going to be substantially different next year. I think it's going to continue to be an evolution that will, you know, again, like in, in, in my read of things, the interest rates are going to remain, you know, at the higher levels for for the time being. And that's going to continue to put pressure on, you know, getting more discipline in the business models. So yes, I see it as a, a, a trend that will be sustained, but I'm not sure that it's, you know, everybody is really quite there yet, or it's going to be quite as bright of a line that, you know, 
after next year, we're going to fully shift from a growth mindset to an operations and uh, performance mindset. What do you think, Julie? Yeah, I think, I mean, sometimes I'm really interested to see what the data says, right? And it's always, I feel like we're at that weird point of the year where, you know, everybody's planning for, for Thanksgiving here in the U.S. And, and Christmas. And so in a sense, you kind of feel like, oh, we're, we're at the end of the year, but the, the books haven't closed yet. And I think sometimes, especially with a lot of the heightened media attention and all of the kind of significant commitments of, of companies, decarbonization, consolidation, all of the moves kind of being in the headlines, sometimes you know, we think that the, the data is going one way, right? And in actuality, like we may have a pretty significant year as compared to 2022. We certainly will expect, you know, just as much money having gone into the energy transition sector this year as it did last year. Let's see if the data proves me right or not. But I, you know, it can, the media attention can be a double-edged sword, right? I, I used to complain, you know, I don't even think it was that long ago, maybe six or seven years ago, that no one, you know, kind of outside of my professional network had any clue kind of about grid issues or how projects get connected or how electrons move, reliability, resilience, all of those aspects that we live and breathe in, in the energy industry. And now there's a lot of public awareness about all of those topics, right? Some of it being from those extreme storms, but also I just think there's a lot, a, a broader group of journalists that are, in, that are well-informed, that are taking the time to fully understand the sector and, and articulate it in language that, that people can understand. And so I think that heightened understanding, heightened awareness is, is really great for the industry. And I think it's important that people understand how their electricity gets produced and the limitations of the system, right? I'm sure we've all had people in our, in our lives mention, well, you know, we've got such great wind, wind resources in Wyoming, like we could power the whole country from just that, that wind resource. And, and the practicalities of something like that are, are not necessarily, um, you know, realistic. And, and so I think just having a balanced view, which, which takes a lot of information and understanding is, is important for the future of our, of our energy resources and our electric grid. Um, and I do feel like the public has really increased their understanding. So that, that to me is a win and um, it will be interesting to see whether we outpace uh, last year in terms of, in terms of investments. Yeah, well, I, I look forward to having you both on again in a year's time or so. We can see where we stand. Um, well, thank you very much for your time. Lisa, Julie, it was a, a real pleasure. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.